He's not trying to give a word-for-word dictation of the sermon. What, what we're getting here is a, a summary. Luke has summarized. This is what Peter talked about. Now, I imagine that Luke probably heard a lot of this from others. Luke would not have been present for this. And so there may have been a lot of conversation about, but what was that first sermon? I mean, think about what we're going to read today. I mean, the Spirit has just come, filled the apostles. Christ was just ascended. The Spirit has come. And we're going to read today, if you think about it, the very first, we're going to call it Christian sermon, right? I mean, that's what we're looking at. This is pretty significant. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later in church. I'm preaching a sermon, and the sermon I'm preaching today is from the very first sermon. That's pretty significant. And there's some amazing things that we're going to find in here. And so when I read through this, I want you to think about it, not just from Peter saying it, but imagine if you want People who were there that were eyewitnesses that, that heard this and they were they were repeating to Luke and Luke as he's gathering witnesses, he's gathering testimonies. But what was that first sermon about? He, he's he's kind of gathered gathered it together. And he said, this is the summary of that first sermon. These are the scriptures that were used. These were the main points he was trying to make. And so when I read through this, I want you to think about that aspect of it. And so I'm going to read, read this now. And I want you to just kind of enter into it if you want. I... I this may not work for you, but sometimes when someone reads a passage of scripture, I like to follow along, but sometimes it's good to just sit there and listen to it and try to put yourself as recipients of those this sermon, just the way these, these people would have heard this. Starting with verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, these apostles, are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock in the morning. And so a little side comment here, if you remember last week, they were speaking in, in all these different languages of all the people that were there, and there were a few that said, man, maybe they're just drunk. I mean, that's, that was the accusation. And so Peter starts off with this, this defense. That's not the case. It's only nine o'clock. Nobody's drinking and, and, and drunk that early in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He quotes, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your, old, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make full, make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, in that area, there was a tomb that was considered to be David's tomb. And so they would have known this. They were in Jerusalem. Maybe he even motioned in the direction. This tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I tell I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, there's a lot that I could dig into here. Let me give you three. Can I give you three things that I almost preached about? Can I do that? Uh, let, me give you, let me give you three. One, I, I thought about talking about Joel's prophecy. But I, I've talked about it twice, and so I thought, well, I'm not going to dig back into this. But I thought about talking about Joel's prophecy again. I'd mentioned this before, but you have to understand that what Peter's doing when he brings up Joel's prophecy is, is he's sitting there. And so think about what, what all of these people are experiencing. They've just seen these Galileans, and maybe with their Galilean twang, right, their, their uneducated sound, are up there and they're speaking in a, all these different languages, and everybody's shocked. They're like, how in the world? These are Galileans. They don't know how to speak another language. You know, they don't know anything, and, and they're doing it, and they're, they're just amazed. And, and, and so that's why some of them say, maybe these guys are drunk, you know, and, and, and they're just going on and on. And, and what Peter does is he starts off by, by, by giving a defense, and he says, what, what you're seeing, this... Is not drunkenness. This, what you're seeing, is that thing that Joel talked about. So that thing that Joel talked about, you're seeing it right now. I mean, can you imagine there? I mean, can you imagine how neat that would be to be be watching with your own eyes a prophecy that that all of those people, all those Jews would have known. This prophecy is being fulfilled before their eyes. And so Peter says, "This is that thing." He makes a couple of changes from Joel's quotation. So when he quotes Joel, he does a couple of things differently. The first one is, uh, Joel says, and afterwards it shall be. But instead, what Peter says is this. He says, and in the last days it shall be. This is very profound. Uh, uh, you may not realize this, but there, there, are, there are sections of time. And so we have this time before the flood. So from creation to the flood, that's, that's this early time period. 
But as God begins to unfold his salvation of humanity from the fall of man into sin, as he begins to unfold this, there's this time that we think of as the, the last times. And understand that when we say we're living in the last times, the last times started with Jesus. When the Spirit was given out, that's when the last times began. This section of time that we're in is the, the final chapter of God's plan for humanity. We're, you, you can say we're living in exciting times, aren't we? We're living in exciting times because we're, we're in the last time. We're not this time here where the law was given. We're not this time here. But we're, in the, we're in the last times. And that's what Peter's talking about. He says the last times have begun. So when, when Jesus ascended, the last times began as the Spirit was poured out. And he makes reference to some things that are going to happen at the very, very end on the day, he calls it, the great magnificent day. But I mean, here we are. We're in this section. The end times, the final chapter of humanity. That's what we're living in. It started then, it's unfolding. I know many of us, we talk about living in the end times, and I understand we are, in that sense, already. They were. But don't you think, as time unfolds, is the chapter coming to a close, you think? We're getting closer and closer to the end of this final chapter. We're living near the end. There's another change that he made. Notice that he says here, he says, um, let me go down, he says, uh, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on, now originally Joel just said, even on this, like basically the servants. Peter throws in the word, my, meaning God's servants, God's people. Right? He throws in this word, my. So here this prophecy, he makes these slight adjustments to show that this is right now for you and so here, Peter and all these guys are just these basic guys. And so I think that they're claiming this reality. Joel's prophecy is coming true. We're just servants, but we're his servants. That would have been a good sermon, wouldn't it? <laughs> I thought about digging into that. It's very significant. There's a few other Old Testament scriptures that that Peter uses. This is one, and he uses two others. And so I thought about, instead of that, I thought about focusing on the way that Peter quotes Old Testament Scripture. I mean, when he preaches his first sermon, he doesn't just get up and preach what he thinks. What does he do? He preaches from Scripture. That's pretty important, isn't it? The very first sermon uses Scripture that's there. And my favorite aspect of this, when he uses these Old Testament passages, and so, for example, this first one, which I'm going to get into a little bit more later, is Psalm 16, 8 through 11, which we saw in, the, uh, in Acts right here, chapter uh, 2, verses 25 to 28. He's quoting a psalm. And I, I love the fact that when he quotes it, he's, he's basically saying that was talking about Jesus. It wasn't talking about King David. King David's in a tomb. So when King David said he, he, the, he will not allow his Holy One's flesh to see corruption, he couldn't have been talking about David. He must have been talking about somebody else. And Peter's saying, it was Jesus. And that's what we did earlier when we read those, those passages that Ashley had picked out about Isaiah. We're, we're reading something from the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ. And you read it and you go, well, that's Jesus. That's talking about Jesus, obviously. I think of those passages 
in Isaiah, like the ones where it says he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sins was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You just think about those passages that speak of Messiah, and, and that's the first thing that Peter does. Is he says, he's talking to these Jews, and he says, that was about Jesus. He goes on with Psalm 110.1, which is verse 34 in Acts, and he, he quotes another psalm, Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. See, that wasn't David either. Who was that talking about? He's pointing ahead. I could have made a whole study out of that one. I don't know if that would have been as good of a sermon, but it would have been a really good class, wouldn't it? Yeah, interesting. Here's a, here's a third one. I told you I'd give you three. Here's the third one. I almost made a whole sermon out of verse 23. Look at verse 23. I'll put it up there. I'll read verse 22 as well, just in advance. Men of Israel, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And they would have. They would have known who Jesus was. Jesus wasn't a, a minor figure. He was a very known public figure. Everybody knew who Jesus was. Probably many of these people had seen Jesus do things and, and, and marveled at it. So they knew who he was. But then he says this, and I love how Peter handles this. This is a topic that just twists some of your minds up and just, just leaves you laying on the ground like, I don't know what to think about this. But the Bible just says, boom. Ready for it? He says, this Jesus delivered up according to, and he uses two little phrases here. Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan, which he had been attesting to because you go back to these Old Testament scriptures that prophesied Messiah will suffer. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So not just foreknowledge, not just that God was looking ahead, but it was a part of his plan. You crucified and killed. So here we have something that's amazing. God is in control. His plan is sovereign, but you people are still responsible. Do you see what it says there? And for them, that would have rung so true because these would have been the same people in Jerusalem that may have been part of that crowd saying what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Peter says, you didn't realize when you were saying that you were killing the Messiah. The Messiah that you've been hoping for. You were part of his demise, but he came back. He rose from the grave. And see, all of that stuff you played in, that was God's plan from the beginning. You're still responsible for what you've done. But know that God never lost control. Once again, I, I wanted to delve into that. There's a couple passages later, I think in a couple weeks, I'm going to come back to this one and, and really dig into this because there's another place where talks about God's hand and God's plan work this out. But instead, I want to do something different. Yeah, you're, you were kind of, man, that would have been a good, you, you know what you were thinking? You were thinking, is he done? Do people, yeah, that's what they <laughs> Did you see, I saw, I know why they're here. <laughs> give my father-in-law a hard time. He, he finds out there's a meal going on and he shows up. Church, oh, interesting. <laughs> Crowd, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, instead, I want to. I want to briefly. I want to. I want to really take you into the flow of this sermon, Peter's sermon. I know that none of us can fully appreciate this, but as I was studying this, I, I just my 
my mind began to delve it. Like I was just sitting there going, I'm starting to get what's being said here. And I'm sitting here going, I mean, this sermon, the way Luke has authored and, and, and made this summary is actually considered to be a, a piece of art. It's a, you could call it a rhetorical, grammatical masterpiece, the way he's laid this out. And so I'm going to take you into just a little bit of the flow of this sermon. The way Luke records this sermon is significant. And so I'm going to take you into this. Notice that it starts off, first of all, with a defense. Now, this is very common with Greek expositors. They would begin by offering up a defense. And isn't that exactly what Luke does? He says, these men are not drunk. Right? That was the accusation. They're drunk. They're crazy. And what's Luke's reference that he makes from Peter? Peter says, he starts off, they're not drunk. In fact, then he goes a little bit further into the defense and gives an explanation. What does he say? He says, this, what you're seeing, remember, is that, this prophecy from Joel. And so he offers up, he says, it's not what you're accusing them of, but it's something more significant. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. And he offers up this defense of what exactly it is that's going on. Basically he's saying we're not crazy for thinking that Jesus is the Messiah. He even goes into this next passage where he says, consider King David's words. I mentioned this a moment ago. I'll talk about it one more time here. Acts chapter 2, verse 27, where he quotes King David. He says, for you will not abandon. This is David writing this. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is referring, that's the way they refer to the grave. Shoal, the grave. You will not abandon my soul to the grave, my, my person to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. And what's Peter do? He says, he's he's shifting the defense into something different. He's saying, not only am I defending this, not only am I saying that we're not crazy for what you see happening here with the Spirit being poured out, but I'm telling you something right now. This Jesus, King David, was actually referring to. See, it couldn't be David, right? Because what did he say next? He said, it could be David, because where's David at? Right here is his tomb. You probably open it up and see his bones. Did his flesh... See, corruption, yes, King David is dead and buried. <clears throat> so who was King David talking about? And Peter's saying, I, what, what's he, what is he doing here? He's saying, I'm suggesting, this is what he's suggesting to these Jewish people. I'm suggesting that what King David was actually referring to, he was speaking prophetically about the coming Messiah. Now, the Jews of this time period knew that quite often King David would speak in his psalms, not just of himself. They, they knew this. They understood this. But here, what Peter's doing is, and I think he's probably blowing their minds because remember, they're thinking, this is a dumb Galilean. And he just unfolded, unpacked a piece of Old Testament scripture and said, this is a messianic, this is, this is a, a prophecy about the Messiah. And you guys have all played a part in it. There's a progression that he does. I find interesting as he begins this, he starts off this address, and I think it's in verse 14. He addresses this crowd as the men of, men of Israel, or men of Judea in all Jerusalem. Verse 22, he shifts it over to men of Israel. But after he does this address, he begins to bring it back to them, making the point that, hey guys, you're the ones that participated in the killing of the Messiah that we've been waiting for. 
after he begins to point that direction, he calls them not men of Israel, not men of Judah, not these formal titles. But he shifts it in verse uh, 29 and calls them brothers. Amazing piece of work that, that Peter is unfolding here where he's, I mean, can you see what he's doing? He's defended his stance. This is why this is happening. He's begun to shift it into not just a defense, but ultimately really an attack on what they've done. But in the process of shifting it and being informal, what's he do? He becomes very informal. Brothers. Brothers. He doesn't distance himself from them when he says, you kill them. He says, brothers. He does a bit of a reality check at this point as he's shifted this to who, that this is really about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. And I can imagine these people hearing him, hearing Peter speaking, and, and maybe the gears are turning and they're starting to go, wait, this actually fits. This works. I mean, we thought the Messiah would be this way, but, but he's pointing out some things that maybe we were mistaken about Jesus. And then he does a very strong reality check in Acts chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 34 and 35. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, God saying to Christ, now this is what Peter's saying, God saying to Christ, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let's chew on this for a second. I can tell some of you are looking like, what is it? Footstool? What's that got to do with anything? What do you think about what he's done here? He said, okay, you were mistaken. Jesus was the Messiah. You killed him. And let's think about what happens next. Remember, we've entered into the last times. What happens at the end of all of this? Right? He says, he says, come sit at my right hand. Isn't that what Jesus has just done? He's just ascended to the throne to be God's, you call him his right hand man. See, there's an end to the end times, isn't there? So, so what he's done is he said, okay, Jews that are listening, that this end time stuff, yeah, you missed the significant part that the Messiah must first suffer, but you're right on some other aspects. Eventually, he is Lord and all will bow the knee to him. And he's going to be at God's right hand until he's made his enemies his footstool. That's what he said. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, that's the verse he says next, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. This is where we get into this response in the crowd. Can you imagine hearing this? Can you imagine being part of this? I mean, just enter into it. You probably thought when you were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, that you were defending God's righteous name by, by getting rid of this heretic that claimed to be God in the flesh. And now here you are, as the scriptures are unfolding, as Peter's unpacking them, this untrained fisherman unpacks these elements of scripture, and the gears are turning in your head, and you start to realize, maybe it would be, wouldn't it be a sinking feeling? Oh. We, not the Romans, they had a part in it, but it was 
us. We're the ones that had him killed, the Messiah. We've been waiting for the Messiah. And he shows up and we don't even recognize him. But all the house of Israel therefore know, this is the end of his sermon, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? What do we do? This is a great place to be. What do we do? I want to tell you today as I get right to this very end, I want to say this. I want to go back through this argument with you as well. Christianity, church, all this, we're not crazy. We may think we are sometimes. But we're not drunk when we say that there's a Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago, that he was killed and he rose again. I'm not nuts for standing up here and giving up my Sunday morning to try to tell you about that. That's not crazy. And I have to say that we all, we all, are just as guilty as those people were. There's not a one of us that would have stood apart from the rest of that crowd because we all, even to this day, reject Jesus as our Lord. He's reigning now. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. He ascended to the throne. The, the work of salvation has been done, and he's called us to, to be his, his loyal servants and his children. And all of us, at one point or another, have fallen short of the holiness that he's calling us to. We've said, yeah, you're Lord, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Are we any different than them? No. Our response ought to be the same. Cut to the heart. Think of all that Christ has done. And all that he continues to do is he sits at the right hand of the Father, and here we are. We ought to be cut to the heart. Peter told those men, and as I read this, I want you to know that when you hear this, Luke is summarizing, and we're going to see this a similar summary again and again and again in Acts. But what's really profound is that so often, when we come to Christ, we come to church, we come to see these things, our, our, our focus is on something completely different. We're seeking salvation from our messed up life. And so often we come to, to Christ to, to, to make it better. And you know what? He can. He does it all the time. Yeah. But understand this, as we go through this book of Acts, and we look at these sermons that are being preached 2,000 years ago, that the emphasis again and again shifts away from what he can do for you now. It makes us abundantly aware that there is a king at the throne who's coming back, and his enemies will be his footstool. I don't know what it means to be a footstool, but I do not want to be footstool fodder. Right? 
mean, don't, if there's anything else that you get from what I'm talking about today, understand this, that as we look at these messages in Acts, the primary message is not going to be come to Jesus because he's going to make your life better. The primary message is going to be come to Jesus because you're going to die one day and you're going to stand before the king. There's, there's an afterwards. And the, the apostles, again and again, they want people to be ready for that, to know that Christ has made a way of salvation, not just from this, but, but from something even bigger, scarier, more frightening, the wrath of God. These men understood that. These men understood that they said, that it says they were cut to the heart. They recognized that if nothing else, they were guilty of rejecting the king. And if nothing else, we are all guilty at some point in our lives of rejecting the king, the kingship of Jesus. We ought all to be cut to the heart and seek brothers. What do we do? And Peter, so graciously, has already called them brothers. And their response is brothers back to them. Now instead of saying drunken idiots, they say brothers. What do we do? Do. The message is clear. Luke doesn't make a point of getting this in the same order every time. You read, we're going to read through Acts, and when it comes to this end call of what to do, sometimes he says it this way, sometimes he says it that way, sometimes it's in this order, sometimes in that order, but there's essential elements every time. And one of the main ones is repent. Trust in Christ. In this case, he talks about being baptized, right? Isn't that what he says? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because this promise, Joel's promise, is for you. Think about how significant it is, because, because now, when he says for you, it's not just for, he's not just looking at a group of, uh, a big crowd of Jewish people that may have already thought, well, yeah, of course, promises God are for us. He's looking at a Jewish crowd that has realized we rejected the king. And Peter turns around and says, this promise is still, still for you. For your children. Oh man, there's all kinds of people that are far off and it's for them too. Aren't you glad? Because we're really far off from where they were. And here we are, it was for us too. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. We've got a song that we're going to do in just a moment. And uh, I want you to encourage you to use this time as we listen to the song. The song is Revival, I think is what the name of the song is. I want to encourage you as you're listening to this song to, to ask yourself, are you being cut to the heart? Do you recognize your own desperate need, not just of a, a, a Savior that's going to make your life better? And, you know, frankly, maybe you came here for that reason. That's fine. But maybe you're sitting here now and you're going, I've rejected the king. In my life, I have rejected the king. But know today that as you're sitting here that this message is for you. You may have rejected the king a thousand times over in your life. Do you know today that even now, this message is for you? This message is for you. You can today say, Lord, I want to repent. Maybe you're sitting here saying, brothers, what do we do? Repent. 
baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And this Holy Spirit that was poured out on these fishermen from Galilee is available to you as well. He poured out even on me. Us who were far off from this story. I'm going to pray and then they're going to lead us in this song. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to ask, Lord, that as we listen to the song, as we sing along to this message, Lord, of, of Peter's that, that's laid out for us in this defense of where they're, they're coming from, turning into this pointed, you could call it an attack on where we are. Lord, help us all to recognize our own guilt of sin and our own desperate need of a Savior who's gracious, that even when rejected, he offers salvation. Lord, help us today, if we have not yet come to this place of repentance, let today be that day. Lord, if we have come to that place in the past but we've been struggling following through, I pray that today would be a day of, of renewed vigor in the direction of following this Messiah, our King Jesus, who is now at the right hand of the Father. Help us to remember that one day, these end times that we're in aren't over yet. There's going to be a day, a great and magnificent day, when our King Jesus returns. And Lord, help us all to realize that no matter what else goes on in this life now, we want to be on the right side of that and not just something for the footstool. Lord, help us today to follow after you, to believe in this Christ, this Messiah. I pray this in your name. Amen.